You can send that to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It is my personal email. There are no screeners or personal assistants. It will come to me. I will read it. Most of the time, uh, if it's not a question for Jack, if it's just an email to me, I will respond. It usually will be short, like, hey, man, thanks for the kind words. But it's really from me, and it's not automated, just so you guys know. Before we talk any more about stuff like that, though, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. I'll try to blow through it today because uh, i got a few extra things to toss in for you. First of all, let's take care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day number one, MERS-radio.com. That is M-U-R-S dash radio.com. What is MERS Radio? Well, MERS Radio is a really cool technology that allows you to create a second line of communications for you and your family. There's five frequencies and multiple sub-frequencies per major frequency. I believe it's five. So you've got a total of 25 frequencies that you can use. Unlicensed, have a range of one to two miles. Uh, in perfect situations, you'll get more than that. But, you know, bank on that. And by the way, the radios that say 15 miles at the store that are cheap, they have also a range of one to two miles. Just thought you'd like to know that. Now, what MERS does that's kind of beyond what's available at your local sporting goods store is one, it offers a little bit more privacy because less people use the MERS frequency, so you're more less likely to bleed over into someone else's frequency, especially if you set your devices to one of those sub-frequencies. Additionally, it'll let you combine security and communications into one unit because you can buy motion detectors. You place these motion detectors at different spots on your property and if something uh, causes motion in that area, what you'll then hear come to your handheld or to your base station is alert zone 1 or alert zone 2. And you'll know if some ass clown is trying to steal your stuff or if your dog's trying to get away or anything in between. So check out MERS-radio.com. Uh, next up is the Berkey guy. Uh, that's located at directive21.com. I really think you should uh, check out the Berkey guy. Um, the guy's a great dude, man. I actually just had dinner with him and his family last week. He came out here uh, and made sure that he took time to meet up with me. We sat down. We talked about a lot of things. talked a lot about business. We talked about customers. And what I got out of the Berkey guy is exactly what I expect. He cares about his customers as much as I care about you guys. And, and that's the kind of sponsor I want. And uh, he even tried, you know, I'm, I'm the, he's the customer here in this relationship between he and I, right? I mean, I'm the guy that, that, that you know, gets a check from him in, in return for his sponsorship. You know, the guy tried to pick up the tab at dinner. I would have cut his fingers off with uh, my new uh, cold steel knife before I let him do it, but he tried. And that says something about integrity. Check this guy out, man, and check out Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. I'm going to tell you right now, there's one thing that you will not survive without, and it's water. 
And I don't believe that the water that comes out of my tap is the safest water to drink in the world, the way that we're told by our government. And I believe that getting things out of there, like fluoride, is a good idea. So Berkey won't just make nasty water safe to drink. It'll make water that we've been told is clean, safe to drink as well. Check out the Berkey guy. Next up, make sure you connect with us real quick on this today. Mainly YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Everything's available on the site. If you send me a Facebook friend request, I'm probably going to turn it down if I don't know you yet. Because you can only keep so many friends on Facebook. But I have a fan page for the TSP. I also just set up a public figure page. If you search Jack Spirico on Facebook, uh, you should find my public figure page. And uh, you can join that. And that will be more of a direct connection. But I can't just take everybody as friends. Now that I get how Facebook works, that's kind of not really a good idea. Um, but if you are my friend on Facebook already, don't worry about me unfriending you. You're, I'm not unfriending anybody. I'm setting a new policy going forward. Next up, consider joining the MSB. Uh, I think you'll get a better view of what the MSB is about now if you click on the MSB banner or uh, the members banner at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, I move the uh, the explanation of it to the survivalpodcast.com and off survivalpodcast.net with a little bit better uh, overview. So check that out. Uh, I also want to remind you guys, I'm now doing a little mini podcast on businesses called Five Minutes with Jack. That's at jackspirico.com. That's all I'll say about that today. Last, over uh, the weekend, actually Friday, and it was aired yesterday, I did an interview with a guy named Steve who runs a podcast called uh, Two Beers with Steve. Excellent podcast on the economy. Uh, guy that kind of made some friends over at uh, uh, Chris Matterson's site and their forum about the economic woes that we're in for. And uh, he's been doing a show for, I guess, about a year, something like that. Uh, really good guy. He does mostly interviews. Uh, I've heard him maybe once actually be the guy that's doing the main talking. So he brings in a lot of interesting guests. So you might want to subscribe to his podcast. But I'll put a link to my interview over there and definitely check that out. And with that, we're ready to go into the main topic of today's show. Uh, our first question comes to us from Jeff, and uh, I already sent Jeff an email response, and I guess that was a little too hard on his uh, co-workers, but when you hear the email, you'll understand why, because he said they're really not as bad as he made them out to be. He was just maybe a little irritated at the point. He says, he's a, Jeff says, I'm a rookie to survivalism. I really appreciate your show. I just recently graduated. I'm trying to, find, uh, trying to plan a career and lifestyle off the principles you espouse. Well, dude, I'm glad you're taking my principles, but make sure you make them your own. And if you don't agree with one, I'm going to tell you right now, Put that one out of your planning. Find the principles that are important to you. Base your life on your principles, not mine. Uh, but going forward, I want to give my girlfriend a great gift for her birthday and our three-year anniversary coming up this November. She is going to be teaching high school Spanish in St. Louis, Missouri, where they have open carry. Uh, obviously, she's not allowed a weapon in a public school, unfortunately, but since I... Uh, am not there to keep her safe. I would like to gift a good starter weapon to get her acquainted with self-defense. I was thinking of a Walther P22 with a pink digital camo finish, and a pink slide would be right up her alley, and she would really enjoy it. The ammo is also cheap, and the weapon is compact and easy to fire. After sharing this, my co-workers are berating me, telling me I'm not giving her enough protection and that a P22 gift idea is inadequate Hurt my feelings because I thought this was a great idea. Are 22 caliber pil uh, pistols suitable for self-defense? Please respond. Your insight would be appreciated, Jeff. Well, Jeff, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell everybody what I've already told you by email. First of all, the 22 is absolutely not an ideal self-defense round. Um, of course, what would be an ideal, perfect self-defense round? To me, it would be a 
a round that would immediately, upon entering the chest of the intended victim, explode like a tiny grenade, guaranteeing death every time, instantly, and would have a smart technology built into it that if you accidentally shot the wrong person, it wouldn't go off and it would bounce off their chest and fall to the ground. Additionally, it would be so accurate that you would never be able to miss anyway because it would have guided missile technology that identified bad guys and chased them down around the corner. That would be the ideal self-defense caliber. Since that doesn't exist, we have to go, what's the ideal self-defense caliber of what's available and what's the ideal self-defense round of what's available and, and my feeling is kind of your bottom line for that being serious here for a second uh, for a serious carry weapon is going to be a 380 and, and that's kind of the bottom end and I know there's limitations there so all you ask cons are already slamming on your computer about how the 380 is going to get you killed don't bother sending them I'm aware of the limitations minimum all right because again is it something with smart technology to explode inside of the bad guy and turns cor- no right so there is no ideal um, nine millimeter, you could do a hell of a lot worse. It's a, a fine round. There's a reason it's the primary round of, uh, of many of the governments of the world, including the United States and, and Russia. Um, personally, I carry a 45 and I, I like big holes and I can shoot it well and I can carry it well. And so it's a better round for me because I'm more comfortable with it. Uh, I've said before, I don't like the 40. That's set off a shit storm of emails. I don't like the 40 personally. It's, it's, it's a fine round. There's nothing wrong with carrying it if you like one. It's just of all of the rounds that I just gave you, it's the one I don't own and probably won't buy. So to say I liked it would be misleading you. It wouldn't be fair. If I say I like something, I like it enough to purchase it out of the choices that are available. Uh, otherwise, it's just, you know, it's, it, it works. There's a ton of other rounds out there like that. 357 Magnum is a great self-defense round in the right cal or the right platform. 22, though. If I have a choice between facing down a guy that's bigger than me and can hurt me uh, with a 22, especially a nice, fast-shooting, little, compact uh, handgun like the Walther P-22, or a sharp stick is my defense, guess which one I'm going to take every freaking time? And there's something to be said for a 22 and it's low recoil, easy to shoot, easy to conceal, lightweight, and usually high-capacity situation. Four of those things in the chest suck, and they'll ruin anybody's day. Would I bet my life on it? Not if I had another alternative. But here's the real thing. Everything that I read from Jeff's email, this gal's not going to be walking around carrying this little P-22. This is to get her shooting. This is to get her acclimated. The 22 is perfect for that. I don't care if it's a Ruger single six. I don't care if it's a Sig Mosquito, which I actually think if you want to eventually move somebody up is a better weapon to train people with uh, than the P-22. Just from its form and fit and function, a little bit larger size, I think it's a uh, it, it's easier to learn to shoot well and give shoot, new shooters confidence. But I don't have any problem with the P-22. So I think your, your co-workers are ass clowns because they can get the point. The point is to get this girl shooting and hopefully uh, make it a lifelong passion of hers alongside of yours. That would be great. Or at least get her uh, skilled enough uh, that she can defend herself if she has to. And again, uh, the 22 is it my first choice for self-defense? Absolutely not. But it kills more people every year than anything else. Something to think about. I even know of a, of a verifiable uh, or at least reputable report uh, from a guy that I would re- take anything from as being fact, and that's Peter Hathaway Capstick, who's gone from us now. Great outdoor writer, rooster right for uh, Guns and Ammo, 
and uh, wrote several wonderful books of the 22 actually killing not one but two elephants with single shots to the chest because of the angle of entry. Uh, once a fluke and once repeated to see if it would work by some poachers. Uh, so the 22 is not inadequate. It's a hell of a penetrator, uh, and it works, but it's a relatively small caliber. So first choice, no. Good good gun to get a new shooter shooting, absolutely. Last thing on the pink, i got to say it, I tried not to. I don't like pink. I don't like pink guns. To me, a gun is not cutesy. But if you like pink, I'm okay with it. Just personally... Pink I, and pink camo. I, you know what? If it gets the girl shooting, great. But honestly, folks, guns should be concealed, and pink is not a concealing color. Even in an open carry situation, a gun does not need to have anything that attracts undue attention to it. Pink attracts undue attention. Not my choice, but I understand those of you who choose it. Let's take. And I also don't think guns are cutesy, folks. And pink. And cutesy, you know what I mean. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. I went a little long on that, but it's only because I was pissed off when I read the email the first time. Here's an interesting question. Uh, let me see if I can get through all of the uh, stuff and get right to the, the main question. The guy's in debt because he and his wife gave some money to uh, the uh, his his wife's mother, and he doesn't regret that because she's the only mother figure he's ever known. That's a short and sweet version of the beginning. So he's trying to get out of debt. Cut back his purchases, not buying anything he can't live without. Uh, but he also has a decent firearms collection. Nothing extravagant, but a, but good solid equipment. I do not, however, have a gun safe, and obviously doesn't want to invest money in that right now. I've kept firearms in the back of the closet, oiled regularly every couple weeks, and covered with some old sheets. I've been toying with the idea of oiling them up heavily and trying to seal the we- up the weapons with a food saver with a fresh roll of film. You ought to be able to get just about any long gun inside a bag with very little trouble barring any problems with scopes. Do you see any drawbacks to this? Is there something I'm overlooking here? Thanks for all you do. You're a true inspiration. Well, Corey, thank you. And it was Corey that sent that in. Uh, let me get, uh, let me tell you, Corey, what I think of your idea. Don't freaking do it. All right? If I take a gun and I uh, you know, vacuum seal it, now if it was one gun that you're breaking down and going to put away in some kind of cash, okay, fine. But these are your weapons. These are your primary weapons. Right now you're keeping in the back of a closet. I think it's good that you pick them up every couple weeks. I don't think you need to oil your gun every couple weeks. I don't, unless you touch metal surfaces, that little oil coating that you put on there provides adequate protection for a long, long, long time. Not for years, but for more than two weeks. Sheet over top of them. I don't think you're really getting much protection out of that other than you keeping dust off of them, and that's good, but at least it conceals them a little bit. But here's what I want to bend around your head there, Corey. Um, you can go out to a place like it, and I know you're keeping your purchases down, but money is money is money, right? And however we spend money is as important as how much money we spend. I want people to write that down if you've never heard that before. How we spend our money is as important as how much money we spend. All right. So if you're going to put all your, your rifles into... Uh, these these uh, you know food saver bags. You have to go buy the food saver bags. They're not exactly cheap. They're not real expensive, but they're not exactly cheap. Assuming you have a collection of six to eight guns, you're going to probably spend close to a hundred bucks on bags. Okay, for a hundred bucks, hundred and ten bucks, hundred twenty bucks. You know, we're split hairs now. You can go out to a place like Academy Sports and Outdoors or Sports Authority. A lot of these places, and you could get not a safe but a gun locker. Uh, that sells for about a hundred, hundred and twenty bucks, somewhere in between. That'll hold anywhere between eight and ten guns. 
Okay. Now you take that into your closet and you go back in the corner where you're keeping your guns now and you find your joists in your floor and your supports in your wall on both sides of that corner and you attach that cabinet to the back wall and to the side wall and to the floor. And I'll tell you what, getting that out of there without being able to get inside and open and take the, the bolts from the wall, especially if you use good sized lag bolts, not too big, pre-drill so you don't split your uh, joists and your, uh, your, your studs. Um, you do that, and you ain't getting that thing out of there easily without making a tremendous amount of noise and taking a tremendous amount of time. So now your guns are more secure. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep your guns in that gun locker, locked up and secure, protected from dust that way, given some additional environmental protection that way, and you won't spend much more. And I'll tell you this, if it costs you $50 more, it's a better uh, spending of your money. If it's your last 50 bucks, then hold off on it until you can do it. I wouldn't spend my money to put my guns into a food saver bag. Let's take another question. All right, um, so here, the next question is actually an article sent to me, and it comes in from a guy named Mark, uh, and Mark says, is basically some professors singing the praises of GMO food, thought you'd want to use it for your show. I, I do want you guys to check this article out. I want you to read it. I want you to read it for a, for, for a, a totally different reason than you might think. It's somebody else's view on GMOs. It's somebody with the complete opposite view that I have. Listen to the other view. Before you do that, though, I have to tell you why I think this guy's an ass clown. Let's just look at one piece of this article. So basically, he goes through this whole thing about why GMOs are okay, why they're good, and how they do all kinds of wonderful things. Maybe I'll read a little bit more, but I want to get a lot of stuff in today, so I'm not going to go too deep in this one. But he says, some fear the domination of the seed industry by multinationals, particularly Monsanto. Monsanto is certainly the most determined and successful agritech company. In their view, they had to be. They bet the company on agrobiotech because unlike their rivals who also sell nylon, listen to this, or agrochemicals, they had nothing else to fall back on. Really? Monsanto doesn't have any agrochemicals to fall back on? Really? They don't make Roundup. They haven't built genetically modified crops that specifically fit their agrochemical business. I wonder how many agrochemicals Monsanto actually makes. Well, on Mon Monsanto's own site, uh, they make Acceleron, which is one of their agrochemicals. Of course, Roundup. And uh, they also make a, another product called uh, YieldGuard. So there's three chemicals that are complete, total, top-line brands right on the Monsanto website. So when you get something that easy to understand or you know anybody that had any rudimentary understanding of GMOs in Monsanto would never say that they don't produce or sell agrochemicals. That's the most asinine thing I've ever seen. It's their entire business model. So I want you to read his, his view of GMOs. And, you know, he says some fear the GMO is bad for health. There is no data that support that view. How about the, the rats that were fed genetically modified corn and experienced liver and kidney failure? So, factually wrong. Read his opinion anyway. And I think you can comment on this article. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And then you tell this ass clown what you think of his assessment. And if you agree with it, fine. I always want to be able to allow people to present, you know, dissenting views. Uh, I don't like people, you know, recently I had a guy on the blog that was insulted. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. You insult my friends, then you're not welcome on my blog. It doesn't mean you can't dissent. But when you have a dissenting opinion... 
with two glaring holes in it, no proof of any any type of health risk, and Monsanto doesn't make freaking agrochemicals? You read the article, you decide whether you think this guy has a brain or not, uh, or if he's just bending facts because he's a shill. I don't know which one it is, but I'm going to just call him an ass clown and go ahead and take another question. So this one comes from Dan, and you understand Dan's email. Recently we've been having some conversations. Is there any place in the United States where you can live tax-free other than federal taxation, and specifically relating to property taxes? Uh, it turns out that there are places in Alaska where that is the only thing that exists is federal income tax. Um, but Dan, sends, who's from North Dakota, sends this email. Jack, in a recent episode you asked if anyone knew a place in the U.S. where there's no, no property tax. In North Dakota campaign for liberty and other groups will probably get a constitutional amendment on the ballot to abolish property taxes this November. Wish us luck, Dan. He gives me a link, and I'll give you a link to the story. But the, the, the measure would basically um, bar, uh, just bar property taxes in North Dakota. The measure says the legislature would have to replace local government property tax income with state tax revenues. Lawmakers would have to come up with a method for providing state funds for local governments. Okay, well, here's the thing. So in other words, what they're saying is, right now, local governments fund themselves through property taxes. And then the local governments would defer to the state and say, state, give us money. And the state has to figure out where to get the money from. I, I don't completely like that side of it, the no property tax thing I like. All this will do is raise sales tax in North Dakota. That's not necessarily bad. I'll tell you the other side of it. But that's the, that's the only way to fix the problem quickly and efficiently with an existing system. The existing sales tax rate in North Dakota is 5%. I think it's 7% on alcohol and like certain things like farm equipment and our big ticket items, they give you a break and it's like 3% or something. So you guys check the numbers if you want to. I think that's right. Because uh, I looked it up last week when I got this, this question. Um, but if this gets on the ballot and it passes, what will happen? Well, they raise sales tax. Let's say they raise sales tax to 7 or 8%. It'll probably fund the gap. It might have to go to 9. I don't know. Maybe some of these local governments will have to cut some spending to make it work, but one way or another, they're going to have to kind of equalize things and equal it out. So I think that we have to say, well, how do we distribute the money? Does, you know... Joe Blow Township get as much money as Mark Thompson Township. I don't know how they're going to do that, but if they can work that out, the difference between a property tax and a sales tax is I control my sales tax by controlling my spending. So I can buy only what I need new and pay sales tax, but I can go out and buy a lot of things on the secondary market and avoid sales tax. So sales tax is is much more of a, it's not completely voluntary, but it's closer to a voluntary tax than, let's say, an income tax or a property tax. So I like the proposal overall because I like eliminating any tax. Even if we're paying the same amount of money, the less places we pay it to, the greater oversight that voters can have on what's being done with it and the easier it is to understand. And the thing about a sales tax, again, it's something that a voter can decide, enough of your shit, you're spending too much money, and they can curtail their spending or go through different channels to avoid the tax. So overall, it's okay. The key that we have with any tax cuts, and this is something we have to start understanding, is, is people that are libertarian-minded or conservative-minded or anything in between, that we already have these programs and these spending in place. Anytime we cut a tax, we have to cut spending to go along with it. So if the state increases taxation on sales, and that results in a delta of, let's say, there's 
20% less money available in the state to spend, then we have to cut spending in the state by 20%. That's not bad, but you need to understand it. It's not as easy as cutting the tax. We also have to cut the spend. You know, The liberal wants to tax and spend. Unfortunately, most of our conservatives want to talk about cutting, do a little bit of cutting, and keep spending. We have to, you know, they have to throttle back at the same uh, speed on both sides of the aisle. Eventually, that creates surplus, and there actually is more money to spend, but it doesn't happen overnight. What would this mean for North Dakota if they do this? You'll see them become one of the few states with a booming economy in the United States of America. Businesses are already attracted to North Dakota because it has a low cost of living and uh, a good workforce, and you know it's it's got some things against it like you know winter. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's got a lot going for it. You take it to where I can go there and set up a huge factory, pay zero property taxes. You know, it becomes a lot more attractive to a business, especially in this hyper-competitive world. And then it starts to become more attractive than outsourcing to somewhere like Ireland where they have a lower corporate tax rate because I can offset my expenses with no property taxes when I have own a very large uh, business. So... I'm all for this. Just understand with any tax cut, folks, all these guys that keep promising them to you, if they're not going to cut spending to go along with it, they're either not going to actually cut the taxes, they're going to change the way the taxes are taxed, and and you're still going to pay the same and you'll think you got a tax cut, or they're going to screw us worse than we are with a bigger deficit. So we've got to cut both sides. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's a question I've answered a bunch of times. The link is in the video. I've done it on the show three times. This will be the fourth. I'll do it one more time. This comes from Debbie. In one of your food storage videos, you had a metal can with a lid that you were using. It looked like a quart-sized paint can. Was this indeed a paint can, or was it some other type of can designed more for food storage? If not a simple paint can, would you please tell me more about it and where I might purchase it? Thank you for all your hard work and valuable information. Sincerely, Debbie. Debbie, it is a paint can that is phenolically lined and FDA approved for food storage. They are available from the Carry Company. I will put a link on today's show notes. There is a link in the video notes. Whenever you guys watch one of my videos and you see something, I'm like, this is cool or that's cool, and you go, boy, I want to know more about that. On YouTube, there's a little place where there's notes for the video. You just see like a sentence. There's a thing you click and it expands. And then all the video notes are there. I usually write three or four paragraphs worth of video notes for most of my videos. And there's links there. And anything that you see in there that's really cool that you'd like to find, there'll be a link to it in the video notes. So, yes, Debbie, they're paint cans. No, they're not normal, everyday epoxy paint cans or just metal tin paint cans. They are, again, it's a gold lining. I actually said that in the video. It is FDA approved for food storage. The only place I found them where you can order them uh, reasonably priced without ordering like 10,000 of them online so far is called The Carry Company. My sponsors out there, this would be a good product for you to start inventorying and carrying. Uh, I'm telling you right now that people will like these things, uh, and they are exceptional for storing food, especially dehydrated foods. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, um, I'm getting a lot of people telling me that the thing about a Roth IRA is that I can take my money out without paying a penalty. Uh, at least all the money that I've contributed, not any money that I've earned as interest, because I already paid tax on it when I put it in, so I won't have to have a penalty to take it out. I told you I never thought that was right. I had a hard time pitting it down. Well, Romer um, sent me an email, and Romer, I won't say where or his last name or anything, but he works for a sizable bank, 
and does something called private wealth management. So he would know. And I'm going to give you the details per him and per uh, a publication from the IRS he's citing. You asked for details on Roth distributions and taxation of penalties. I don't know if you already got the answer, but if not, check out pages 64 to 66 of this publication he attached from the IRS. The bottom line, when you set up a Roth, you cannot withdraw from it within the first five years without penalty, subjecting the earnings to income taxation. Okay? So... If you withdraw within the first five years of setting up the account, you're going to pay penalties just like it's a conventional IRA, even though you already, um, if you if you take out any money that you earned interest on. So we already knew that. Principal withdrawals, right? Principal means, so I put in $10,000, and there's $15,000 in there now from earning money. <laughs> nice try right now, right? But let's just say there is. I can take out up to $10,000, and I'm not going to pay income tax on it, okay? But... Only if I'm making what's called a qualified withdrawal, uh, then you may be subject to withdrawal amounts of 10% of the early withdrawal penalty. After the first five years, withdrawals that are not qualified will be subject to a 10% early withdrawal penalty. Qualified withdrawals will be income tax free. So there you go. So to, to get out of paying any penalty, um, you will have to pay... Uh, you have to wait over five years, and then you're still going to have some penalties. Even after five years, to not pay the early withdrawal penalty uh, and not pay any kind of fees or additional cost to your money, you have to uh, have reached the age 59 and a half, which means the money's available anyway. You've become disabled. You're the beneficiary of someone who, was, who owned the IRA who became deceased. The distribution, you are using the distribution to pay qualified first-time homebuyer amounts. The distributions are part of a series of substantially equal payments. So that would mean that you start to liquidate the account in very uniform payments, and they continue. Uh, you have significant unreimbursed medical expenses. You're not paying medical insurance premiums after losing your job. The distributions are not more than your qualified higher education expenses. So if you have some qualified student loan debt you, or higher education expense, you could pay it off. You have to see what the specifics behind that are. The distribution is due to an IRS levy on the qualified of the qualified plan. In other words, you're being taxed for money you put in there when you weren't supposed to, I guess. So if the IRS wants their money, they'll let you take it out tax-free to pay them. Nice, huh? The distribution is a qualified reservist distribution, which I don't know what that is. Uh, I'll have to find out for you guys to let you know in the future. Uh, or it's qualified recovery assistance distribution. Here's the key. This is, this is what it really comes down to. The, the thought that since I put the money in there and I already paid taxes on it, that I can just go take the money I put in, not the interest earned, but the money I put in out without paying a penalty anytime I want is a myth. doesn't work that way. Once the money's in there, it becomes subject to additional legislation. And here I just gave you uh, the things that, uh, that you know qualify or don't qualify for you, that. The big thing is, if you're not making a qualified withdrawal, then you're going to be subject to with, uh, a penalty of at least 10%, plus you may still have tax consequences uh, if it's been under five years, period. Just so you know with your Roths, it's not that easy to get your hands on it once it's in there. It's still what I prefer to a conventional IRA for a variety of reasons, but I, I hear the myth all the time, I wanted to kill it. Thanks, Romer, for sending that in.
Real quick one here. Just wanted to throw a shout out though on the the supporter of the member support brigade, uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds, uh, who also gave away some seeds two weeks ago. Five different packs of seeds, about fifty bucks a piece. So that was two hundred fifty dollars worth of seeds they gave to the audience two weeks ago. Uh, this comes from Joe. Joe says, "Hey Jack, love the show. After listening to an episode in which you recommended high mowing, I ordered a catalog. The time was about twenty three hundred ish." That means it was about 11 o'clock at night for new civilian types. The catalog arrived in the mail the next day. I live in Michigan. Wow. Thank you again for your recommendation, Joe. So he ordered a catalog, which is free, at 11 o'clock at night and got it the next day. I don't want to unreasonably set your expectations. That can't always happen, but that was pretty freaking cool. And it, it's about having an efficiently run business that takes care of customers. It's part of why I'm such a big fan of high mowing. Let's go ahead and take another uh, email from you guys. This guy comes from uh, Australia, so uh, and I know that was a terrible attempt at being Australian, so I won't do it again. Um, but his name's Greg, and he takes me to task here because I thought that the uh, scientist a few weeks ago that created a virus to give to rabbits in Australia was a guy playing God, and he tells me how bad the uh, the rabbit problem was and how this guy actually really did, um, you know, help out by doing that. I'm all for controlling rabbits that aren't supposed to be there. The best way would have been to have them not be there in the first place. I still think there's another way than a bioengineered rabbit. But, you know, to be fair to Greg, I understand things are not always easy to understand from, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. So I'll give you that one. But his question is totally different. He says he lives in a town outside of Melbourne. Local shire councils, which I'm not familiar with because we don't have those here, control local laws such as the number of animals you may have. That I'm familiar with. The legal limit on chickens on my one-third acre block is five. At what point do we as survivalists start to ignore the laws in favor of preps? Also, I have a growing family. Our flock of four hens only just produce enough for our needs. A larger flock would also mean eggs to barter with. Well, number one, you already have room for one more. Because you have four, the limit's five. I'd get a fifth one. Okay? I wouldn't go screwing around with breaking the law over something like a chicken. I bet there's other things you can do to circumvent the law, like maybe spread the... Uh, Spread the concept throughout your neighborhood. Do you have a neighbor, especially one within, you know, five minutes walk or less that would be open to having chickens on their property if you took care of them? And in return for taking care of them, maybe they get 20% of the eggs produced and you get everything else, including the manure for homesteading and stuff like that. Uh, just saying, you know, there's a lot of ways around things like that. As to the, the heart of your question though, when do we start to ignore laws in favor of preps? When the law enforcement organizations themselves begin to fail to be able to enforce the laws, not necessarily the laws that we're breaking, but the laws to protect us. So when the law can no longer make sure that I can get eggs from the grocery store, that I'm going to have as many damn chickens as I want, if you don't like it, come try to take my chickens, and I'm going to bury you under my hen house. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. As long as the law enforcement in the land that we have decided to live in is doing its job, and as long as the law is reasonable and constitutional for wherever you live, your constitution is different than mine, then I believe it's an incumbent upon us as citizens to either obey the law and, if we don't like it, work to get it changed. When the law begins to fail, right, there's a law that I can't, I don't know, have more than five chickens in my backyard. And 
I can go, uh, you know, everything is running well, and at least I can have some chickens. They've not taken away my rights altogether. And they'd say, if you have more land, you can have more chickens. This is animal welfare. Hey, you know, if I think that I, I can go make a case to the government, I have to get people on my side, get that law changed. Now, I can't, I can't survive. I'm getting a rooster, baby, and I'm making as many chickens as I can get. Layers and fryers. All right? So... That's really the spirit of the question. That's the best answer I can give you. We start to ignore laws when they are either, one, un unconstitutional, clearly unconstitutional, clearly a violation of our rights, and we cannot end up in jail as a result. Because if you end up in jail, you're just trying to make a point. I'm glad some people will do it. I'm going to tell you I wouldn't do it. I'm sure it's not going to advise you to do something I wouldn't do. Okay? But that's, you know, that's one. Two, when the law itself, it doesn't matter because the law is no longer being enforced. And people are breaking your window in to steal your chickens in the first place. And at that point, until the law can reestablish order, then I have to take care of myself. That doesn't mean I violate human decency. That doesn't mean because the law is not in effect, I go steal from my neighbor. Because to be a survivalist, you have to have principles. And you people that always talk about, you know, as soon as as soon as things start to break down even a little bit, people will be out killing each other and stealing from each other. The people that think that way generally are the people that would do it. And you're not a survivalist. You're a parasite. If you would actually go out and steal from somebody else while there was any other alternative available, anything that could keep you alive. I mean, if someone is down to the point where if I don't steal something, I'm going to die. And they've made every attempt to try to barter or deal with somebody else, and they steal to live. I understand, but if you go out and shoot somebody just because you can get away with it, so you can have more, you are a parasite. You are not a survivalist. You are a give survivalists bad names. I don't know how I got off on that, but it's because I've been hearing a lot of this crap lately, and it, it, it just bugs me. Uh, these people that are like, uh, there's a guy that wrote an article called "I'm Your Worst Nightmare in a Shit Hit the Fan" or something like that on, on James Rawls's blog, and everybody thought it was a great article. Oh, a terrible article. I mean, I guess it's a good article because it makes you think about the fact you may have to defend yourself, and it may be harder than you think. But you know what? There's a reality out there. This country's been through a hell of a lot harder times than anything that I, I see coming in the next five years. We are misleading ourselves to believe this is anything like the Great Depression, because it's not. It might be the worst economy since the Great Depression, but if I punch you in the face a thousand times with a steel glove, and you recover, and then 20 years go by and nothing happens to you, and I slap you 20 times with a bare hand in the face... It's the worst beating you've taken since the last one. But it's not even close to as bad. And we've been separated by too much time, and we forget that. As Americans, and as people, as human beings, this guy's from Australia, we tend to band together in tough times. And there are the scum that will take advantage of them, but, you know, a thousand people banded together outweigh, you know, the 10%, 5% of scum. And... Uh, That's not a realistic way to think. So let's go ahead and take another question before I just keep going on this. This one comes from Josh. Josh says, uh, I recently saw these at Costco. You can use double A's for everything by slipping them into the right size sleeve. Any problems with the concept? And he's got a picture attached to the uh, email. And it's basically a recharger and some double A batteries and then a whole bunch of sleeves. You've got sleeves for C's and D's. Uh, and what that allows you to do is put your your you know your uh 
Your double A's. Are they double A's? Hold on real quick. Let me make sure I don't give this to you wrong. Now, the batteries themselves that actually hold the charge are triple A's. So I charge my triple A's, and then they can go into sleeves and be double A's, C's, or D's. So I cover all of those bases with one set of rechargeable batteries, or one grouping of rechargeable batteries. And he wants to know, are there any problems with this? Yes and no. No, because now I have a rechargeable method that can power any device using any cell size battery, and that's a lot of redundancy. I think this is a great product, and I'm going to probably go out and buy one or two of them uh, because I, I see a lot of advantages here if power's out. The downside, though, is there any downside? Yes. A double or a triple A battery does not have the storage capacity of a D battery. It's not just about voltage and initial output, it's about the duration against the power draw of the device. So if I have a device that's being powered by AAAs and a device that's being powered by Ds, and assuming they're both good quality batteries built the way they're supposed to be, even though the device may, may be able to, to draw power and work perfectly using two AAAs or two Ds, I'm going to get a longer duration of time from my Ds because they have more capacity. That's why they're bigger in the first place. If they didn't have a greater storage capacity, uh, then there would be no reason to make a bigger battery. Does that make sense? The product is called Eni Loop, or Eni Loop, something like this. It's supposed to be like envelope, I guess, is what they're kind of playing off of there. Made by Sanyo. Looks pretty cool. Again, I'm going to probably pick some up. I like the idea, but I also want to be realistic with you guys about the duration capacity of the individual cells. Bigger cell greater capacity, longer duration if the power draw is the same. There's a reason that a 4D cell mag light is brighter than one that runs, let's say, on 2Cs or even 4Cs uh, because you can use a higher output. Now, you could make the 4D cell run on the Cs, and when you turn it on, it will be just as bright as the D cell. Which one's going to last longer? Which one has greater capacity? Which one, even when the brightness begins to fade, is going to still be usable for a longer period of time? And the one more thing on rechargeable batteries. When you take uh, a good quality alkaline battery and it begins to lose charge, it kind of, if you had a graph, you know, it has a peak and it just stays there and then it starts to fall off and it's a gradual slope and you get a long time between not quite optimum and dead. With most rechargeables, you'll find that you get good, 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 dead. You get very little time where you have like a dim light, but it still works. So as soon as you know it's starting to go, you need new batteries. So that's another weakness with rechargeables. Good stuff. Great little uh, product, though, Josh. Uh, again, I'm going to pick a couple up, and uh, let's go ahead and take uh, the next question. Okay, uh, this one comes from Mark. Mark says, will you please comment on this article concerning inflation and deflation from the Wall Street Journal? The author sums up inflation as, it is nothing more than consumers having too many dollars to spend that are, than there are goods to buy. This is contrary to everything I know about inflation, which makes me think the author is an idiot. I would like to hear your opinion on this piece. Well, the article is written by a guy named Tom Graff, who I've decided is an ass clown. You can decide if he's an ass clown yourself after you read his whole article. He's not a complete ass clown because, like most people that are credentialed enough to write um, for the street.com, which is who he writes for, and it's not a Wall Street Journal article, it's from the street, and it's on Yahoo Finance. I think that the, uh, the it was a Josh, or whoever sent this in, corrected himself on that. But I just want to point that out since I read his email directly. Um, 
has some idea of what he's talking about. They just get wires crossed because of belief systems is what this comes down to. You have to you have to look at the economy, economics and politics the way an atheist would look at religion. All right? You can't have any bias to anybody being right. And you have to just pick the stuff out of it that actually makes sense. And you have to look at the fundamental realities behind it. Okay? By the way, I'm not an atheist and for those atheists of you that I have set recently, sorry, tough. If you're an atheist, you shouldn't care what I said about the way you think about religion and spirituality, right? Anyway, um, but here's here's a little bit of the article. Inflationary pressure in the U.S. economy is minimal. Wages aren't growing, consumers aren't borrowing, and neither are businesses. All this more than offsets the aggressive monetary policy currently employed by the Federal Reserve. However, outright deflation is a failure of a central bank to act aggressively and should be completely avoidable. Okay, here's what he's saying. There is the, the only reason we have deflation is because the bank failed to do it. The central bank, the Federal Reserve, failed to do its job. That as long as the Federal Reserve acts, it's impossible to have deflation. Okay, you're already an ass clown. You're already an ass clown. I'm sorry. That is just complete bullshit. That's how they sold the Federal Reserve to the American people in the first place. It's 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 not because people in in the end make spending choices, and that's where he's trying to go with this, but he just misses the mark. I'll keep going. Many investors expect imminent inflation acceleration. There are several reasons give, given to the cause. Government borrowing and accommodate, accommodative monetary policy probably being the most common. However, it is important to realize that at its core, this is where he says it, inflation is a very simple phenomenon. It is nothing more than consumers having too many dollars to spend uh, than there are goods to buy. No, that's supply and demand, not inflation, buddy. I'm sorry, you're just wrong. Now, obviously, the reason why consumers might have too many dollars could include overborrowing by governments to overly accommodate monetary policy. But even so, if consumers don't wind up with more nominal dollars, regardless of any other variable, inflation is impossible. To see what I mean, consider a scenario where the Fed literally throws $10 billion out of a helicopter over Times Square. We'd expect to see some pretty severe localized inflation in New York City. As whoever happened to be standing on 42nd Street at the opportune moment got a lot more dollars to spend, but goods available to buy has remained unchanged. No, that's not inflation. That's supply and demand. Okay? But for the sake of argument, let's say that all the lucky recipients of the helicopter drop decided to just stick the cash under their mattress. Sure, there are theoretically more dollars to be spent, but unless someone actually spends those dollars, there can be no inflation. No, that's supply and demand. That's supply and demand, buddy. And it also tells you what you, you know why you're wrong in the beginning where you say the only way there can be deflation is if the bank doesn't do its job. And he gives a whole list of things that the Fed can still do to inflate the whole balloon again. But let's this is so important, and this is why I was willing to talk about this article. To, to look at inflation as simply put as this guy puts it, and he's not completely wrong, like I said. But to make it that simple, completely misses the actual definition of inflation. Inflation is permanent, or not permanent, inflation is constant. I'm sorry I used the word permanent there. It's constant, and it's across the economy in most, if not all, sectors. Inflation, therefore, would affect not just the value of something in Times Square, New York, but across an entire economy, at least at a national scale, or at least at a state scale, all right? And it would be a long-term effect, not an individual pop. When hurricanes come in and 
local food merchants jack up prices because of a run on the food, that's supply and demand, not inflation. Because as soon as the factor that's creating the shortage is gone, the prices return to their nominal level. That's what he's describing. A helicopter drops $10 billion. Everybody's flush with cash. It starts blowing it. Well, here's the reality. Most of the people that you drop the $10 billion to in Times Square would get the hell out of Times Square with the money they had as soon as they quick, as soon as they possibly could. Grab and go, and they would take that money and spend it elsewhere anyway. You know, they wouldn't be hanging around holding on to a couple million dollars in cash that came from a helicopter. They'd get the hell out. And they would take that money and push it through the economy, and it would have a leveling effect the further it spread. Supply and demand is at acute points in an economic system. There's a shortage on Wii's, Nintendo Wii's when they first come out. There's a price spike. But as soon as the demand is reached, right, then the price levels to the market price. Inflation affects the market price, not the individual commodity price. So, in an inflationary period, the cost of housing, cars, fuel, food, everything as a constant increases Not at the exact same rate, but at an aggregated rate where there's some similarities across all the commodity spectrum. Because it is not the increasing of price. It's the devaluation of money. The money becomes worth less, not for one particular area or transaction, but in its life cycle as dollars or yen or pounds or euros. This guy's totally wrong and partially right. And that's sad, because this is the kind of shit that confuses people, and it makes people think to themselves, oh, well, if there's not going to be deflation, then it's still a good time to buy a house. People have been, I'll say that, because somebody else asked that, it's one of the last questions here today. But the reality is that most Americans have bet their entire life on inflation. And I'm going to ask you right now, have you bet your life on inflation? See, if you believe in just buy and hold stocks and bonds... And that's diversification. And if you just keep putting money in and dollar cost average and wait for it to work out over time, and sooner or later markets always go up, then you're betting your life on inflation. Inflation is the only thing that can make that happen. Inflation is the only thing that can guarantee the long-term increase in value of the stock market. Because it's only guaranteed by the guaranteed devaluation of the currency itself. And the devaluation of currency and inflation is what forces people to risk their money. Now, there are some salient points in this article. The fact that if I put a whole bunch of money into the economy and everybody holds on to it and nobody spends it, we don't get inflation or we don't get very much inflation. Or if everybody holds that money plus more money, we can go into deflation. That is true. So when he says that the only reason we would have deflation is because the central bank didn't act aggressively enough, he's a Keynesianist. He believes that if you push money in, money has to come out, no matter where or how. He even says the Federal Reserve could spend money on ketchup in this article and, 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 and stimulate the economy. This is nonsense. Because here's the reality. It's not about whether or not the consumers spend the money. It's whether they get the money to spend in the first place. The reason we're not seeing inflation right now is because all the money the Fed's pumped into the system has stayed up at the M3 supply. There's an M0, that's the money in just money that's out there floating. It's cash, right? It's in your pocket. You're spending it to buy gasoline. There's M2, that's your checking account and, and stuff like that. And, or M1, that's your checking account, stuff like that. There's the M2, bigger corporate accounts and stuff. M3 is the institutional money. 
And I won't go any deeper than that. I have a whole show on the M, M, M supplies of money you can listen to from the early days. But the M3 is stuff like credit default swaps and major banking institutions and their reserves. The big money. And right now the big banks are getting the big money from the Fed for no interest and they're buying treasury notes with it, loaning it back to the Fed who then loans it back to them and they're building up the money at the top level of the banks because the banks are about to go broke. Many of them are anyway. And when they do, that money evaporates and it's gone. And what does the Fed do then? And what do people do with it then? Do we have inflation or deflation? The answer is I don't know. But I know the economy is screwed. It's either, it's either screwed through an inflation cycle or a deflation cycle. And I'm telling you, if you bet your life on either one, you're screwing yourself. Because it's like betting your life on the flip of a coin. That's why modern survivalism is about solidifying your lifestyle and measuring your life in quality. In the quality of the years that you spend, not the money that you accumulate. Money is a fix for a lot of things, but it's not a fix for everything. And when we fixate our minds that money will solve all our problems, we defer the lifestyle we want today until tomorrow. And we end up being old people that never used our best years to our advantage. And I'm not talking about the advantage of making more money. I'm talking about doing things that you're actually put here to do. The things that your soul is happiest when you're doing them. And I know that the economy and lifestyle from a, a, a soul-quality lifestyle uh, seem to be miles apart from each other, as long as we're not talking about buying happiness. Well, I'm not talking about buying happiness. I'm telling you, the two overlap each other completely. This might be hard to understand if you've lived your whole life under the belief, if I just had more money, I could fix everything. What I'm telling you is if you fix everything, you'll have more money. And don't bet deflation or inflation. But understand the concept so that when you hear misdirection or misspeak like this, inflation is simply people having too much money and not enough stuff to buy. You know, we had a lot of inflation in the 90s. People had plenty of shit to buy. And a lot of consumer goods were going down in price, but there was a constant inflation. Because we kept putting more and more money into the till, we kept borrowing more, and we kept devaluing the currency, because when we put a dollar into circulation, the only place it gets any value is to suck it from its brothers and sisters, since there's no underlying commodity. So if I have $10,000 for all the money in circulation, and I put 5000 more, and I want them to have value, they have to suck value from the ten. And the total value of money declines by a third. And I'll leave it to you to figure out why it's a third, not 50%. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another question before I go off on a tangent on this one and wrap the whole show around it. Okay, so uh, Chris sends this one. So I'd like, I like the podcast, nice job. I'd be interested in dehydrating food for a while, but I'm not sure on it, on an efficient way to do it. I've looked at food dehydrators, and they are quite expensive and really don't hold much. I also talk with people who use the oven, but I'm not sure it's very efficient running at low temps for a long time. Surely you must uh, have a good way to dehydrate enough vegetables to fill the five-gallon bucket. What do you use? Thanks for your help. If you've answered this before, sorry, I'm new. Okay, I haven't really answered it before this week because nobody's ever asked it this way. First of all, let me tell you something. If you go get a good, and they are a little bit expensive, but they're expensive once because they last the rest of your life, and they're lifetime warranty on the motor. So if the motor ever burns out, you, you, you get in touch with Excalibur and they replace it. You get an Excalibur 9-tray dehydrator. I dare you to grow enough food. To keep it full for more than a day. I dare you. It, dehydration uh, is a very efficient technology in of itself. 
And uh, I don't see anybody out there on a standard homestead, of the, you know, with a suburban homestead, that's going to be growing enough food in your garden that you're going to be able to keep up with the dehydrator when it comes to preparing the food, cutting it up, and putting it there. If, if you can, I dare you to do it with two of them. I'll put it to you that way. Now, there are other ways to do it that are more efficient because they don't use any electricity. There's some pretty cool solar dehydrators out there. They're, they're large. They're big if you want them to do a lot of, uh, a lot of dehydrating. But basically, they're a box with some screens and a vent on the roof and a flume that goes in from the bottom that's glass with black underneath it. Air heats up and flows through there. And they work pretty daggone good. But I use an Excalibur, and again, I, I, I defy you to do that. Now, as far as filling up a five-gallon bucket with dehydrated vegetables, I don't think you understand how much vegetable matter we're talking about to do that. If I take a four-pound bag of carrots, frozen carrots, and you can dehydrate frozen vegetables, and that would be one way to get a lot of quantity fast. But if I take a four-pound bag of dehydrated carrots, it's sizable. It's, you know, it's, you hold your hands about you know, chest width apart, and it's about that long, and it's, you know, it's a big, sizable chunk. If I dehydrate that, it'll fit in less than a coffee cup. If I chop up enough peppers to fill three trays of my Excalibur, and that's a lot more peppers than you think it is, and I dehydrate them, they fit in a pint can. In fact, they have headroom in a pint can. Dehydration is efficient, not just in... Uh, the duration of how long it stores food. Dehydration is efficient in the space that the food occupies once it's done. Most food is between 80 to 90 percent water. So you have a spatial loss of 80 to 90 percent with a lot of different vegetables. Even if the loss is 60 percent, look at food and then decrease it by 60 percent of volume. And then efficiently pack it. You think about a pepper. If I cut peppers up and I can them, I don't just have the full size of the pepper. The peppers are not going to be packed solid into the can, right? They have to have a suspension of some kind of liquid in between them in that can to exist in. That infers space. If I dehydrate my peppers and put them into a can, there's very little space in between the individual components. And the smaller the pieces are, the more efficiently they fit into that space. I dare you to grow enough peppers to fill a five-gallon bucket. I've never done it. I grow a lot of peppers. I mean, that's probably my biggest crop is the different varieties of peppers. Uh, and uh, another thing is dehydrate the store uh, on YouTube, uh, Tammy Gangloff's channel. Tammy dehydrates more food than I think some commercial enterprises do because she's constantly finding something to dehydrate and everything she can't use she's giving away as charity and she uses the Excalibur dehydrators. I think she has two of them. And if two dehydrators are enough capacity for Tammy Gangloff, one is probably enough for you. I don't mean to beat you up here. I'm not I'm just saying it's 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 not it's not the way you I'm not saying anything about you. I'm just saying it's not the way you think it is, Chris. And if you give it a shot, I think you'll be surprised at how long it takes to cut up enough of your production and get it into that dehydrator. Now the dehydrating of frozen goods is awesome because they're all blanched and all you have to do is throw them on the tray and dehydrate them. I'm still telling you. I mean I dehydrated with one run, and my Excalibur for the five-gallon bucket project on YouTube, a whole slew of frozen vegetables and uh, frozen potatoes, a massive quantity of food. They didn't fill up a five-gallon bucket. It's it's a tremendous amount of vegetables. Uh, they filled about half of one bucket when I was done vacuum sealing them and all. 
So uh, don't think that maybe you need to be able to dehydrate a five-gallon bucket worth at a time of food. I think you'd be shocked if you realized what five gallons of dehydrated carrots would look like if you re rehydrated it. You would probably need about six five-gallon buckets to hold them all. Maybe more because they're very, very uh, efficient at their dehydration. So give it a shot. you know. And if you don't want to spend the money on the next caliber right away, I would say spend the money now because you're only going to spend it later if you're going to be serious about it. But go get a cheap dehydrator and just start dehydrating some stuff. And I think you'll see real quick what I'm talking about. You can also just do it in the sun. If you have good, sunny, dry climate, you can set out uh, uh, trays that are made with screen bottoms and just put food in the sun and it'll dehydrate. The, the concern is making sure you get it out early enough in the day that at least you get enough of the dehydration process during the first day, because you need at least two days to get full dehydration this way, that the food doesn't have any problems getting through its first night uh, with pests and things like that. But I would either build a solar dehydrator or just go with the Excalibur. It is the best thing on the market, period. And you probably don't even need the 9-tray. I mean, you need to ask yourself whenever you're selecting your dehydrator, how much am I really going to dehydrate at one time? And I find that even though I bought the nine-trade dehydrator, uh, except for really peak times in my harvest, or if I go out and get a good buy on a bunch of frozen stuff I want to dehydrate, and, or a big surplus comes into the farmer's market and I get a great deal, except for those times, I'm usually running three or four trays. It's very rare that I have the thing full. The beauty of the Excalibur is it'll run full. Even with highly moist things, it'll run full. It'll drain a little bit. Uh, when you do uh, frozen foods at that capacity, but it'll do it. It'll handle It's a horse, and it is, again, a lifetime warranty. Let's take one more question. We'll wrap up for today. It's an interesting question and a tough question. Um, Jack, I'm listening to Mike Gazer on episode 471, and a question came to mind that I thought I would throw your way. Mike says, uh, basically, don't buy real estate stocks or bonds right now. I've just completed a divorce, and I'm now a single man with a house that is simply more than I need, even though I can afford it, and I have no other debt. I've been doing some upgrades to it, and I've been waffling about whether or not to sell it. Given the likely impending crash of our economy, possibly as soon as sometime next year, do you think it makes more sense to get the best low-rate loan possible, or just go ahead and get out of the property altogether? I realize that each situation is different. Just looking for your opinion, thanks. And the guy calls himself Is, I-S. All right. Well, Is, here's... Uh, Here's my thoughts on this. The first thing I'm going to ask you, and you have to answer these questions for yourself in this way. This is good because everybody can benefit from this because however you would answer your question, you, you'll get led to the same, you get led to the proper answer for you because it's all, like you said, everything is different. Do you love the house? Do you want to be in the house? I know it's more than you need, but do you want to live there? If you want to live there and you can afford it and you can reduce your expense, do it now. If you can get, if you're at a six percent loan because of when you bought it and now you've cleared out your life with a divorce and you've separated that side of the financial obligations and you're left with the house and you want to stay there, then refinance now. If it'll save you money, do it. All right. And if you're not sure whether you're going to sell it or not, do it anyway. If you, if you right now, if you can refinance your home for very little out of pocket. And there's any chance that you'll be there two years from now, do it. If it's going to save you $100 a month or more. If it's less than that, you got to think about it. For a lot of people, it might save them $150, $250. That's real money that you can bankroll uh, for your investments, for your prepping, or for cash. That's real money. That's, 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 that's hard currency. If it's $200, bucks, that's $2,400 a year. That's five grand 
Because trust me, you'll make it more than 200. You'll stretch it a little bit. That's five grand over two years. Five grand is real money, even with inflation, right? That's it's a there's not a person out there right now. If I said Jack Spierko on the bottom of the check, payable to the order of listener X Y Z, the sum of five thousand dollars, and I mailed you that check, would be like, holy crap, this is good, right? So. Putting that in perspective for you, so definitely. If you're going to move soon, don't bother, because there's going to be some cost to refinance, and if you're not there long enough to save enough money, you won't recoup it. All right. So it's about whether or not you're going to leave the home in the next two years or less. And if it's going to be two years or less, and you know that's the case, refinancing probably doesn't make sense, unless your bank will do it at no cost. If you're like a really great customer, really great credit, and you phone them up and ask them, and they say, "Yeah, we can do it for no cost, or we can do it for five hundred bucks." Right? Well, five hundred bucks if you save two, you're scratch in two and a half months, and anything past you know ninety days, you're big time profitable. So then you do it. But if they're not going to do that, it's very hard to do nowadays. It used to be easy to do. Um, then, then you you know you got to think about it deeper. Now, here's the key with Mike's advice on not buying a house because I've got a lot of questions about this. When Mike answers that question, I have to look at the frame of reference and what it was answered. When I was asking, what do I do with money right now? And so what he was answering that question to my understanding of investment. If I want my money to be worth more tomorrow than it is today, where do I put it? And his answer was in your pocket, one form or another. Buy treasuries, buy very short-term bonds. Uh, don't lock it away, and, and you really, we just don't know what's going to happen right now. Certainly, don't invest in real estate. That said, right now, if you look up, there's probably a roof over your head, unless you're outside cutting the grass while you listen on your iPod or something like that. Uh, but sooner or later, you're going to go to a place where there's a roof, and we all go to a place where there's a roof every night. And you're going to need a place to live. And if you find a house that you can afford, that you love, and you can see yourself in for 10 years or more, I think now is a great time to buy. Because I believe there is just as big a chance that we will enter a deflationary period as we will enter an inflationary period. I do not know which one is going to happen. But the magic thought that I'm going to buy a house and inflation is going to go up so much, I'll just be able to pay it off in five years because money is going to be so, you know, we have that kind of hyperinflation. It ain't going to happen, folks. They're not going to let it happen. And a deflationary thought where if I just wait another couple of years, houses will be so cheap that I can go buy a brand new beautiful home for fifty thousand dollars with with an acre of property. It ain't going to happen either. It isn't. I'm sorry. Because when you go into deflation, you know what? All these homes you can get for dirt cheap right now—they're either in terrible neighborhoods, or they're in neighborhoods that are in decline because of it, or if they're in a nice neighborhood, the house has been trashed by the person who lived there that was resentful. And there's going to be a lot to go into it to put it back, and you have to hope that the rest of the neighborhood doesn't collapse around it. There's a lot of risks in buying these cheap homes right now. My belief is that you should buy a home that fits your lifestyle. And is well below your income level, and I'm going to tell you that when times are good, and I'm going to tell you that when times are bad. My advice is always going to be the same: investing in a home is one of the best things you can do, always. But if you buy smart and you buy for your life, if you're going to go out and say, "Well, I'm going to buy a hundred thousand dollar house in this kind of up and coming neighborhood, and my plan is to sell it for a hundred and twenty-five thousand two years from now, and pull you know thirty thousand of equity out at that point, and then I'm going to be able to go buy a two hundred, and I'm going to work my way up the American dream that way." 
I think you've lost the wisdom of our grandparents who bought the little house and when they needed more room, built a room onto it. I think it's time for Americans to start looking for homes we want to die in again. And I say that in the most happy way I can when we talk about death. You know, my grandfather used to sit out on his porch on his little place in Pennsylvania. It was beautiful. He said, this is God's country. I'm going to die here. And he wasn't sad when he said it. And if that's the kind of house you find, a place you're going to be happy to die in, and it makes sense financially, I don't care if the economy is roaring like the mid-90s, or as bad as it is now, or as bad as it was in 1936, if you financially have the means to do it responsibly, buy it and build your life there and turn it into a producer. Because if you have a home that you can pay for in a reasonable amount of time, 10 years or less, and if you keep all the other debt out of your life, you'd be surprised at how much house you can do that with. Because all that means is you're going to pay two-thirds more for 10 years. Will you add up the average American's MasterCard and Visa, car payments, and student loans, and it's more than two-thirds of an increase on a mortgage payment? Far more. And once that house is paid for, folks, if deflation hits and you paid $200,000 for your house, and now you can only get $150,000 for your house, and you want to move, people say, oh, I'm going to lose $50,000. And I say, freaking wonderful. Figure out, Get a smart account and figure out how to take a tax deduction for a $50,000 loss. Even though you, have to pay, you don't have to pay income tax on money you make on real estate up to $500,000 in your lifetime, by the way. But I bet you can figure, I bet there, and if you can't, I don't care. If you can, great, make a loss out of it. Now, here's what you do. You say, I don't want to live here anymore, but your house is paid for. You don't owe $250,000 on a $150,000 house. You owe nothing, or you owe $50,000 on a $150,000 house. Now you want to move. Well, if deflation has driven down real estate prices, buying a new home, that house went down in price too, Right? It's only when we overspend and overbuy against our ability that we get burned by the real estate market. We're not screwed real estate-wise in this country because of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. I know we all want to feel that way and we want to be angry at those people, but that's not why we're screwed. We're not even screwed because of credit default swaps and mortgage vehicles and insurance and, and all the other you know, back-end deals that were made. They sure didn't help. But when it comes down to it, people without enough money to afford a home bought a home they couldn't afford. That's what did it. And that's what screwed those people, and that's what screwed everybody around them. You buy what you can afford, even when idiots are around you. You can always back out. You can always have an exit strategy. That's the big thing. When you buy a home, make sure there's an exit strategy. I want you to buy a home that if it decreased by 10% in value over the next year, you could still extricate yourself from it if you wanted to. And I want you to have a plan to be able to extricate yourself from a 25% decline within four years. You do that, and it's always a good time to buy. That's just my thoughts, because I believe that, again, Americans start need to start buying homes again that they want to die in, instead of homes that they want to rub the people who they came up in school with facing it. And that's the problem. We're buying houses about envy, school districts, and trendy areas, and who our neighbors are going to be so we can impress them with how impressive we are, instead of buying homes that provide for our families. Generation. Go back to that, and it will always be a good time to buy a house. 
and it will be another great time to be an American. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living